Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership producer, composer, drummer, and remixer, Jimmy Brailor who has been associated with records surpassing 350 million units in sales. Cutting his teeth with Curtis Blow in 1980, he went on to work with dozens of stars, including Carly Simon, Madonna, Hall & Oates, Nile Rogers, Sheena Easton, Billy Joel, Power Station Duran Duran, Steve Winwood, Shaka Khan, Billy Squire, Peter Gabriel, Cindy Lauper, Brian Wilson, Eric Clapton, Phoebe Snow, George Benson, The Bee Gees, and Britney Spears. He now runs a production business that includes Dynatone Records and offers a full range of artist recording services. Jimmy, I hope I got all that right, and, and welcome you to did. the show. You did. Thanks. Good to be here, man. Where are you today? I'm in my little basement studio in Long Island, New York, and this is where I spend a whole lot of my time uh, recording, mixing, mastering, you name it. This is it. And, you know, it really became home during the pandemic when there was no place to go. It turned out to be a perfect thing to have around here. Well, before we get uh, too far into it, I want to just mention uh, and thank uh, Jeff Boba for kind of connecting us. So, right. My old you, partner Jeff. in crime. Yep. Yeah. 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 So I appreciate that. And uh, thank you, Jimmy, again for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure, man. So, um, what was it like for you growing up and what drew you to music in the first place, Jimmy? Uh, I, I loved music as a little kid. My parents had these photos of me uh, when I was like four years old. I had a little record player with those yellow, you know, kitty golden discs. And, uh, you know, so it's always with the music. And uh, it was about 10 or so. I kind of connected with what was on the radio. In the early 60s, very early 60s. I, I, I loved music. I couldn't play. I tried to take piano lessons, saxophone lessons, because I liked those guys on American Bandstand. Um, but it turned out, you know, my fine motor skills for playing like guitar and piano were like not so great. And so I was a fan until, you know, like everyone else had their Beatle epiphany. Um, I happened to have at the time, me and a few of my friends had a singing group. Uh, this was before the Beatles. None of us could sing. 
But what we did was we got this device from the back of a comic book. It was like a, uh, a megaphone. It's sort of like a Flintstones kind of device where it came with these blank discs you put on your record player and you sang into this megaphone and it had like this needle and it, it cut discs. And what we were going to do was make recordings, send them to record companies and make a scrapbook of rejection slips from record companies. And then the Beatles came along and we all decided, wait a minute, this looks like something we could do. And um, I got designated with, with my friends as the drummer. And uh, I had a couple of pencils and a hat box. And I found that uh, the thing that was preventing me from playing all these other instruments when I was a kid wasn't preventing me from playing the drums. And, um, you know, that just opened everything up. You know, I was like in seventh grade, not knowing what life was going to be for me. I couldn't figure anything out at the time, nor should I have. But um, I got so sucked into it, playing in a band was like the ultimate thing to do. And um, that kind of drove me for many years. And uh, the music of that era was like, it's hard to explain to somebody who didn't live through the, the uh, actual timeline of this stuff coming out in real time, one thing after another, it was like an assault, it was unbelievable. And if, if you were prone to being taken by it it totally you know was overwhelming and and so for a period of about four or five years it was like constant reinforcement for me it was all through high school and into college that this clearly you know gave me the kind of uh you know sense of purpose that i didn't really have any other way so uh it was real early on and uh, it's still there. I'm still driven by the energy from then, to be honest with you. And how did your drum skills progress? Well, I had a band. I learned how to play in a band, first of all. So uh, this was like in 64. Beatles came in like early 64. Uh, my band did our first gig in like October of 64, like at, a, at our school. And uh, we learned how to play. We were, um, like I said, we weren't great singers. So we, in those days, there were the Ventures. There were a lot of instrumental bands. There's a lot of surf music. So we were like an instrumental band. And we really learned how to play, being in the band, listening to the radio. And um, we got a record contract with Columbia like two years later. In 1966, we got signed to Columbia. And uh, we got good really fast you know, between all the music that was coming out and, and all the instrumentals, the Ventures were, were pretty uh, proficient musicians. So to learn those songs was to get any good. And then I, I had a drum teacher who um, was, was a bebop drummer. He was, he was like a jazz drummer from the 40s. And uh, he taught me to, to play music, not drums. That was like the biggest thing I got from that guy, which really made the biggest difference for me. I, I was into playing songs, not the instrument was a, um, a means to an end to, to participate, you know, which, which is how I was able to jettison further down my career into expanding into other areas because it became clear to me that, um, that making records was what I really liked to do. And that was my ticket to get in, you know, on, you know, right in the middle of it. So, um, we got good fast by playing in the band. I'm grateful for that, you know. Your trial by fire kind of thing. Yeah, but, you know, uh, it's one thing to play your instrument by yourself and play along with records. It's another thing to actually, you know, have that interaction and learn how to um, collaborate. All the things that you don't do anymore, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, it, it was a, a great skill set to have and, and really... Uh, stood me well once I got into doing studio work and stuff, you know, knowing how to work with other people. Did, did you have some originals, uh, original tunes with that first band? Yeah, or? one of the guys in my band, he was uh, a Juilliard piano player when he was like 10 years old. He was like a great musician and he transferred to guitar when, you know, the band started happening and, and he knew how to write. And so he had written some songs 
And um, it just so happened that a relative of mine knew somebody who was a music publisher and we made these little demos and, and uh, she played it for this guy and he found out we were like 14 years old. He says, oh, I just helped this guy get a job at Columbia. And it was just like one of these things. And we went and auditioned up at Columbia Records, which was completely unnerving. I mean, we'd been playing literally for two years, almost, you know, like less than two years. It was, we, our audition with Columbia was two years and a day after the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. So from not playing anything to being there, it was two years. It's pretty amazing, <laughs> actually, yeah. you know, pretty prolific two years of my life, actually. So were you in high school at the time? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Started in junior high. It was in like ninth grade by the time this started happening. And, wow. uh, you know, it came and it went. I mean, we cut four songs. We did a session and uh, released a single. And, uh, you know, that was it. Nothing really came of it. And uh, but at the time I thought, oh, you play in a band, you get a record contract, you know, which then I spent like the next 10 years of my life trying to get back to where I was when I was 14. Um, right. Like overnight you know. sensation by the long path. Yeah. Um, were your yeah. parents supportive? Yes. Yeah. My dad uh, was a real music fan and uh, his parents, weirdly enough, didn't want him to play the piano because they saw he liked it so much. They made his brother play who didn't like it at all. Uh, so my dad had this affinity for it. The minute he saw I was serious, we were the house where the band rehearsals were a lot of the times, you know, throughout the years I was there, we were always in my basement or my parents' den, always we were the band practice house. So they really put up with it, drove us to gigs, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I was fortunate to have that support system for sure. And who were some of your influences musically, uh, specifically on drums and then overall, I'm sure Ringo was a big drumming influence, but were there others? <clears throat> Well, you know, I liked all the stylists, you know, I, I didn't recognize at the time what what it was. I was not a technical drummer. I never was. Uh, my technique was not the best. My time was really good. My feel was really good. And um, the musician, you know, Ringo obviously was an influence. But, you know, in those days, in that moment, it was Ringo and Charlie. And uh, I was a Dave Clark fan. I don't know that he was necessarily really playing on those records, but Bobby Graham, who apparently did, um, you know, he played on Kinks records and stuff. It was just, you know, all those timekeepers. I was really fascinated by that. And then my drum teacher was a big, uh, he was very musical. And, you know, so he was not like the Buddy Rich side of drumming. It was more like the Krupa side, which was very melodic. Uh, Max Roach, uh, Art Blakey, very musical drummer. So I, I got turned on to that stuff by him. And, um, there, you know, it was playing the instrument. It was, it was a, a support, you know, in real life. It wasn't just playing rudiments. It was, it was backing up a singer, you know, you know, as time went on for me anyway, it was, he, he always said to me, listen to the singer, you know, play to the singer, listen to the melody, you know, and, and, and support what's going on. And, you know, I took that to heart and, and so, you know, Ginger Baker, I mean, in those days, uh, Mitch Mitchell, all of those guys, they all brought something slightly different to the table. Keith Moon, a lot of stylists, a lot of personality, you know, it was not generic at all. So um, there were different things about each of those guys that, you know, I would find appealing. They didn't all necessarily apply to what I was doing, but um, style was something I was very conscious of. You know, and and still to this day, I really believe that, you know, style is one of the more important things in, in pop music as a musician, you know, that, you know, you can identify yourself by your playing, that people kind of know who you are, that you're not just, uh, we call them seat fillers, get me a guitar player, or get me Eric Clapton, you know, get me a drummer, get me Jim Keltner, get me Steve Ferroni, you know, these are people who do certain things that you called them to do, you know? And um, I didn't realize that when I was a kid, you know, just how important uh, identifying yourself somehow or other, giving some sort of 
separation between you and the other guy. Style, you have to evolve. You know, that's that's a very personal thing. And uh, some people never get that far. You know, they got the chops. But, you know, in the kind of environments I worked in and still do, style counts for a lot. Singers, where, you know, you could tell the voice a mile away. You know, the technically great singer is not necessarily the one who is the successful artist. It's the one with the sound, you yeah. know? Yeah, that's what really touches people in the long run, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, Jimmy, what transpired then, uh, in a nutshell, from from then until, like, you know, the Curtis Blow stuff? Well, the 70s was, like, kind of a weird time for me because... You know, I was in the cocoon with my band in high school. And like like so many people who do things in high school, athletes and stuff, once they go off to college, you know, you're just in a pool of like similar people from everywhere else. Um, I didn't study music in college. I studied business. And, um, you know, there was something missing. I kept quitting school basically to be in bands uh, after my... Uh, I guess in the middle of my junior year of college, I was in a band over the summer after my sophomore year that um, got into a recording situation. And uh, I needed to go up to Boston to record this album. Uh, and it was October, it was like the second month of school. And uh, you know, there was no question in my mind I was gonna take the couple of weeks and disappear to do that. And uh, I kept gravitating to that. In those days, there were no music colleges uh, where you could get degrees in the music business. Or as a drummer, I really didn't feel like, you know, going to a music college that was classically bass where, you know, I'd be hitting a cymbal every 50 measures or something. Uh, it really wasn't what interested me. You know, I was very uh, pragmatic in terms of what I wanted to do with this. I didn't want to just be a musician. I wanted to do music I liked. That was always the through line for me. And uh, <clears throat> that was an era where I didn't really get to do music I liked. I was kind of floating around trying to find bands to be in. And um, so the 70s was a real transitory time for me where, uh, you know, I would do all these different things, but it was also not the same as the 60s were musically. You know, it was it, things changed so quickly back in those days. You know, today, you know, hip hop, since I did those Curtis Blow records, I mean, hip hop is still driving the culture. It's like 40 something years. In those days, you had, you know, Motown stacks, you had psychedelic stuff. This all happened in like three or four years. It shit came and went, you know. Um, in the 70s, there was, you know, it was changing a lot and, and drumming was changing in terms of, uh, you know, the venues that people were playing in were bigger and bigger. The amplifiers got bigger. The drum kits got bigger. And, um, you know, I started out on a little bebop kit, you know, just the kind of drums that were around in those days. And, uh, you know, drumming kind of got more Olympic sport-like over time, you know, it was like sweatbands and, you know, it was the cymbals went higher and higher. The hardware got bigger and fatter. The drums got bigger and louder and and you know it started becoming more of uh you know hit them as hard as you can kind of an instrument rather than a finesse thing uh which is what i learned how to do and uh so i was having this this kind of battle you know the click track showed up during disco i was used to keeping time you know ringo has this line i am the fucking click track you know and and uh you know, as a drummer in a band, you know, you're the heartbeat, you know, and I, I trusted my sense of time. Once it was with the click track, I was working with people who were not as savvy as like the top guys. And they were literally looking at meters on the console of a click track and a kick drum. And when they deviated, they go, oh, you missed one. Go out and play this song again for seven minutes. I mean, this is not fun, you know, and then. uh things started happening with drumming that were just not comfortable for me. Um, in the studio, as multi-track got 
more popular, they, they wanted to separate the sound of the drums specifically so that if you hit a tom, there was no buzzing from the snare. And they would do that two ways. One of them is they would tape up drums so that there was no overtones. And the other is they would use noise gates in the studio so that in order to open the gate, you had to hit the drum at a certain velocity. So if you hit it soft, it wouldn't open it up. So you would, could do a and it would come in bop, you know, two hits instead of six. And I go, what happened? They go, oh, you have to hit it the same velocity every time or you won't open the gate. And so suddenly I'm starting to play more mechanically. You know, um, it wasn't natural to me. And, and uh, what I realized in the late 70s that I hadn't sort of modified the dream I had when I was 14, which was to play drums in a band. And I was still using that as my premise for doing everything. What I started realizing is that I really liked making records, but, but the playing drums part was starting to become something, the thing I loved started becoming the thing I didn't love so much. And um, like I said to you before, one of the premises that I've worked on was that I wanted to play music I liked. I found that I did my best work when I was fully engaged, you know, I'm like the most, not the most talented guy that's out there, but I could be really focused and be as good as anybody when I'm fully engaged. When I'm not, then you just become another guy. So the whole trick to me was finding things that could keep me present and accounted for and not just phoning it in. I had a lot of friends who wound up playing on club dates at bar mitzvahs and weddings to make their money just so they could say they were playing their instrument. And it's like, I don't love that instrument so much that I'm gonna let it take me down paths that make me unhappy. What's, you know, I, I wasn't in it for that. And I realized that drums were a means to an end for me, you know, during that time. It's still what I was doing. So, so anyway, a friend of mine who I was in a band with in the early seventies was working at Billboard magazine. and. Uh, he and another guy who worked there when the um uh, the first rap record came out you know rapper's delight but sugar hill gang you know people calling it like uh, a novelty they thought that there was more life in that world and one of those guys one of those two guys knew some people in the bronx who were in that hip-hop community and the guy that he knew was Russell Simmons. Russell was just like a local promoter guy who had this kid, Curtis Blow. And uh, so we, we made this record. They called me up, my friend who, who was one of the producers. He didn't really know who to call. You know, he called me up and, and you know, I helped him find some musicians. You know, a bunch of, you know, white guys from Long Island wound up coming in and playing. There, were, there was this one guy, Larry Smith, who was like, you know, one of the real founding fathers of, of hip hop. He was in on that scene. There were a lot of cool people who, who wound up being involved in that. But, you know, we got into it and it was still an offshoot of old James Brown and Chic kind of live playing. There were no machines involved at that time. And uh, so we made this Christmas record called Christmas Rappin' and it was like a hit in England. So uh, he was signed to Mercury. He was like the, the rapper who was signed to a major label. And uh, so they let us make another record. And that next record was the song called The Breaks. These are the breaks. It was like, it was like a huge record. It was actually the first gold 12 inch record you know all of those records that sold tons were all on indie labels they were not affiliated with the riaa so there were no uh legitimately gold and platinum albums for those companies but but because this was on mercury this was like the first gold 12 inch and it was the first hit i played on and it was in a genre i knew nothing about and um how, you know you the feel? irony how, how'd you feel when you first heard it on the radio though you know there's nothing better than hearing that, you know, that was coming full circle. That, that was like the achievement. Finally, finally something, you know, but it was in an idiom where, you know, the soul music part of it, I was familiar with obviously, but 
it was the beginning of the whole world of rap. And, you know, it was more like, you know, toasting and boasting kind of rappers. It hadn't gotten dark, you know, and gone gangsta yet. Um, but so we made the first album, the second album, all of a sudden, like somebody comes in with a Roland 808 and says, I got this beat. You know, you got to play this thing. It was like, I just tapped out stuff with all these busy, and um, all of a sudden, I'm like supposed to be playing that stuff. I'm going, oh, this is not good. You know, I don't have those kind of chops. And, and they were not written by a drummer. It was not a very drumistic thing. They were beats. It was the beginning of this whole rhythm stacked on top of each other to create like the package that, you know, and, uh, you know, I seen the writing on the wall. I finally got something that was being successful. And here came this little device. And I saw like my life flash in front of me. It's like, oh, this is fucked up, you know? And, and that, and I was working with another guy at the time who had a little home studio and he didn't have a drum kit. This guy could play everything. But so he played his kick drum on an ARP synthesizer with two fingers. And he played a snare drum with two hands. And then he played a hi-hat. He didn't have a hi-hat. He stuck a cymbal on his couch and he would play that. And they were all these great parts, but they were, they were disconnected in the sense that they were not played um, at one time by a human being. They were, they were sense of rhythms that were stacked together. And I had to learn how to play this stuff. And so all of a sudden, drumming to me became like uh, work. You know, it was it was uncomfortable because I didn't feel like I was in my wheelhouse. I had been playing for like 15 years and it was moving to a place that was not really where I felt comfortable. It's not like I didn't understand it. It's just that when you physically have to present it, um, your limitations will surface. You know, I mean, I, I I'm familiar with all kinds of music. And so when we were at that studio, Green Street Studios on this Curtis Blow record, there was like a mixed magazine in the lounge. And I go and pick it up and I start looking through it. And there's this picture of a box with buttons on it. And at the top of the ad, it says, real drums. I'm going, what's this? And it was the first Lin, the first Lin drum, the LM1. And so I saw the picture of this thing and I'm sitting in the place where all this stuff's going on. I'm going, if I only had this box right now, you know, I mean, it was, it was like to protect myself as much as anything that, that, that change happened, but it was an evolution through the seventies to get there. You know, uh, uh, you know, the thing that happened in the seventies for me is that all my friends, rather than being full-time committed to any one thing, started playing in a lot of different groups, working with a lot of song singers, songwriters. There was no commitment. It was like, I'll be in 10 bands and whichever one connects, I'll, I'll stay with, you know? So that, that sense of camaraderie started going away. That, that team thing that I liked about being in a band started going away. And I was never cut out to be a studio drummer. It was, it was like, I was not that dedicated to the instrument like some guys are. And one of those projects, the guy who played all the parts on his synthesizers uh, was signed to, to, uh, to Portrait Epic Records. And we wound up mixing at the Power Station. That's how I wound up at Power Station was on this guy's record. And I'm looking around, I'm seeing all the great musicians who were working there. I'm going, you know, I'm being realistic with myself. I'm not that, I'm not as good as those guys, you know, as a drummer. And, you know, I didn't really care. I, I realized that I just wanted to be working at the studio more than I cared about playing the drums, you know? And that was like a big epiphany for me. That was my first moment of reinvention in this long career of reinventions, you know? And um, what I realized was, uh, you know, all these great artists were playing there. And, and I saw like those drum machines stacked up in a corner with like Dire Straits or Hall & Oates. They all owned this stuff and none of them knew how to use it really. So, you know, I just kind of smelled the opportunity. The thing cost like, you know, three grand. I had like $3,100 to my name. 
and I went for it. I went for it. I just bought the damn thing. And um, the first thing that happened is I get a call from Mike Maneri, who was working with Carly Simon. They had this song and people were very curious about all the technology, you know? So all of a sudden I was like in the right place, the right time. And I always say to people, well, the difference between me and a lot of other people I know who had these boxes is I read the manual. I actually knew how to work the thing. So, uh, and I also was a drummer. Most drummers like were really resistant to this technology. And for me, it was just like, well, everything I was doing was screaming for it. You know, you want the drum perfect with the click track? There it is. You know, you want to play around and get a kick drum sound for four hours? Here, I'll just put it on a loop and I'll go in the lounge. You know, everything about it for me was right for the moment, you know? And, uh, you know, I was really unhappy with the state of my drumming business at that time. You know, just not so much the work, but the fact that it was the kind of work that was not making me happy, not happy, me no good. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a, the seventies was a strange time for me. You know, there was a lot of different musical styles going on. And, um, you know, I realized just being the drummer was not going to be the way I stayed in this thing. So, uh, you know, I had a good time. I worked in, I had a great band in the, in like 1979 with, uh, Mark Rivera from Billy Joel's band, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, Jimmy Ryan, who was Carly Simon's guitarist on your Sylvain. And he was in a band called the Critters. It was like a great band. And the front guy was a guy named Jimmy Frank, who sounded like, he's a white guy, sounded like Ray Charles. And he was great. And, we got together to um, do a pickup gig with him and we learned 20 songs in like two hours. It was like the most kinetic thing. And when that band fell apart for business reasons, I realized, you know what? There's no way that I'm going to be the drummer in somebody else's band and make that happen. It was the reality of, you know, being 30 years old, you know, and still trying to do the same thing I was trying to do when I was 14. You know, some people it worked for, other people it didn't you know for me you know i came to the realization that you know if i wanted to stay doing this i'd have to figure out some other way to pull it off you know yeah so, so you found a, a you seized a great opportunity and found a, a niche of need you know that was like a seminal moment for me because you know change is something that a lot of people are always afraid of you know, and I made a huge change and it paid off at like a moment where I was either going to fall off the side of a cliff or something good was going to happen, you know, and you took that uh, leaving $100 in your bank account leap of faith. <laughs> I did. And, you know, you know, it taught, you know, there's a lot of things that came out of it, trusting your instincts, you know, really learning to, to uh, you know, know that what you feel is really important you know the only opinion you really have is is what you feel you know anything else you're making stuff up do you know what i'm saying it's like you could talk yourself into anything except how you feel you know so if it, it's a great barometer when you're producing where you have to make decisions like on the fly your gut yeah you know and so even though we're a very data-driven world today you know the truth is this is a gut business I mean, it's so, so honestly, so is baseball, you know, everybody who's like into the numbers and stuff. For me, the numbers always tell you what just happened. They don't tell you what's going to happen. You know what I mean? And when something happens, it's not with the numbers, they go, oh, it's an anomaly. And stuff. that's no anomaly. It's, you know, that's just the way things are. You know, when you trust, you know, the data won't really predict the future, you know, accurately. And uh, all change comes from somebody who, who does something different anyway, you know? So you kind of can't be afraid to be in that lonely space. You know, so those are all the things I learned at that moment, which had nothing to do with drumming, which had everything to do with anything I wound up doing moving forward. So- uh, well, let, me, let me jump in if I could, Jimmy, uh, maybe uh, mm -hmm. take a breath. That was a great uh, summation of the seventies and how you got you know, into that spot with uh, the studio work. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, just a couple of quick questions related to the Curtis Blow thing. Um, yeah. Did you meet him? Did you spend much time with him? 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it was like when worlds collide, we had uh, uh, John Trope was playing guitar on on uh, on the breaks, you know, so there was like sort of a, a, a real seasoned jazz guy, you know, playing those chords, you know, playing those rhythms, and he was great. Um, uh, and Curtis, you know, it, it was like worlds separate worlds in some ways he was hanging out in the lounge while we were cutting tracks a lot of the time and um you know we became as, as friendly as as you know you can in those environments where there's a lot of activity going on um but but you know uh russell was brand new at that game you know it was the first record he ever made was was that stuff and uh so a lot of people came out of that I didn't really spend enough time with those guys. You know, once again, uh, the pressure, we didn't really know totally we, what we were doing in terms of a roadmap, you know, as far as how to make these kind of records. So there was a lot of heat when I was there. Like for me, I try to focus really heavily on what I'm doing. So I do have blinders on sometimes where, you know, it's not that casual. Like I've been in the studio with so many like amazing people and I always have to temper it with the fact that I'm there to do a job. And, you know, so, so um, I'm always humbled by that part of it. You know, it's not like meeting somebody in a restaurant or something. So Curtis was a guy kind of kept to himself or kept, you know, there was a click of, you know, his people who came from, the Bronx and, you know, and, and the Hollis Queens guys, you know, um, you know, uh, run DMC, those guys would come, they were kids, they were hanging out in the lounge at the sessions and stuff like that. And um, everybody was sponging off of what was going on. Um, but for me, it was a lot of work because, you know, I was at a point where the record making was like being very accurate drumming wise. It was not so much playing it with your feel and running the shows like the click is going like this and, you know, I'm playing stuff like this. And how do I hear the click when my kick drum is doing the exact same thing the click is doing? It was, it was a, a lot of work for me. Well, the brakes so, in particular had a lot of percussion in it though. There were two of us. There was this guy, Jimmy Delgado, who was a timbali player. And uh, so we tagged off, we would trade solos and stuff like that, you know, so, you know, the, uh, you know, I guess the, the song, you know, these are the breaks, you know, breaks on a bus, breaks on a train, you know, those kind of breaks. Uh, and then drum breaks was the other breaks on that. And, and so I, I did the first solo on it, then he did the, you know, all of that timbali stuff, but he was like amazing. And then we did stuff together. Um, and that was kind of fun. Those were like, I did the drum track and then we overdubbed the solos on top of that stuff. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's a little bit of a blur to me, to be honest with you, because it was so intense. Just, uh, you know, I can't really explain the collision of worlds that was going on on those sessions. And, uh, it was the first time I really was in the studio playing with, you know, some crack studio guys, you know, who just came from doing three other sessions and were warmed up completely. And me and my friends, we didn't do sessions hardly at all. So it'd take like 45 minutes just to kind of shake out the cobwebs and, and, and get those guys were like ready to leave by the time we were ready to start, you know. So there was all kinds of stuff going on. The yin and the yang of it was pretty amazing. Um, well, I have a soft spot for those tunes, uh, Jimmy, because uh, I was DJing then. So I definitely, you know, was ah. playing the Xmas rap and Xmas rap uh -huh. and, and, and uh, the breaks and all those. And, um, you were also uh, involved with basketball, that track? I'm a co-author of such material. Yeah, I'm a, a co-writer on that. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was quite something. There was a cast of characters that kept expanding. Uh, that was like uh, the fourth album. And, uh, you know, this group Full Force, who became really well known themselves, were like, uh, they were kind of discovered by my friend JB and Robert Ford, the producers of Curtis, you know, kind of took those guys under their wing until they became, you know, like really well known on their own. So they were involved. Um, and, uh, 
I had my Lynn drum at the time and, and we decided we were going to sample a basketball dribble. And we, in those days you had to have a chip made of the sound that was not digital sampling in any which way, like in a computer. So we made the sound of a basketball dribble. We sent it out to the Lynn drum company and they sent it back. And I used the sound of that basketball for the kick drum and for the Tom Toms. And, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of fun. Um, those were hardcore, the, the, you know, Curtis and his crew, this guy, Billy Bill, who wrote a lot of the, the lyrics to that were hardcore Knicks fans, like hardcore. And once again, I'm kind of like on a drive-by. I'm in the middle of all this stuff. And, um, you know, part of my role was, you know, as a conduit to, to help these guys see this sort of vague vision. It was like a cloudy vision that they knew. You know, people know what they want they can't always articulate it as something i've found over the years you know but most people who write they do know what they want they'll always tell me well i'm not a drummer it's like, yeah it doesn't matter it's like i know you know what it wants to feel like so there was a lot of that going on with with that record is that these there were people who knew they imagined they were creating a genre essentially you know and curtis's thing because of the people involved, there was there was singing involved, and you know it was, it was a little more on the pop side of what was starting to go on then, where it was it was kind of getting tougher, um, sound wise, um, attitude wise. But you know Curtis was a personality, and you know he he was a great MC. But then you started getting like like the Run DMC guys; they were like even the next generation, like three years in, there was a whole other generation of guys coming up. So, um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was just always interesting, you know, that the cast of characters on those, we wound up making a record with Rodney Dangerfield too, rapping Rodney. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. actually I made rap records with Billy Crystal, with uh, Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. Um, you know, it was kind of like this cottage industry that I wound up, you know, being involved in. Um, and, and once again, I was into other stuff completely. You know, my heart was elsewhere, but this is where the opportunities were. And there's a whole irony in that of, you know, what, what you love and what you get to do. They don't always collide. I, I finally got it to collide in the way I wanted it to over time. But, uh, you know, it was, it was just interesting working with those guys because they were so into, it was their culture. I feel like I was just sort of, you know, uh, sneaking in, you know, I, I, I just like, you know, I had a backstage pass or something. I was, it wasn't my world. Yeah. But like riding but, your bus. Yeah. But they were relying on me to channel these ideas that they had to make them come out of the speakers, you know, and, you know, I got really good at interpreting and I could make the machine do way more than I could with a pair of sticks. You know, so I wound up doing jazz records. I wound up working with like crazy, super talented people who are, you know, you know, I made a record with Michael Brecker. That's just I'm really proud of it. It's called Escher Sketch. And it was like a layer of drum beats. One was a swing beat and one was a funk beat that we merged together to create this thing at any given time. It might sound like it's swinging or it's playing funky. It's like it was pretty deep and, and there was no way anybody could play it it's like two drummers parts you know and i'm sitting here with like fucking genius musician going man I, I you know i was fortunate i was working with that technology because i could i could make it do whatever i wanted to at that point with the tools i had you know i i could pretty well do anything which i certainly couldn't have done drumming i worked with jeff beck with nile and I'm sitting in a control room with Jeff Beck. It was like the weirdest thing. You know, I'm tapping out a rockabilly beat on a Lindrum and he's playing it. We're jamming together. You know, it was surreal. I mean, but those are the scenarios I would get myself into, um, you know, in those days. So the, the basketball thing was just another one of those where I'm around all this stuff. They got the guy from the Knicks to do the announcement at the beginning of the song, you know. It was like crazy. It was it was, it was a, a lot of fun, but it was work for me because it wasn't my natural instinct to be doing some of that stuff. You know, I should just make a mention 
relative to me and rap and drum machines and Keith LeBlanc, you know, is such a motherfucker. He is such a monster at that. You know, I never ever could think of being able to do that. I would love to, but it, you know, there were guys doing that that made me know that, you know, I needed my own version of it in order to, to compete. You know, I was very fortunate that I got in on the ground floor of what I did, when I did, where I did, you know, because um, that was a real volatile time for, for drums and drumming. And, um, you know, th that technology is now a part of, of the uh, palette of almost anybody, no, no person coming up you know, has a negative reaction to that technology. But I, I had a situation at Power Station where a drummer for a pretty well-known artist came into the control room late at night uh, and saw that drum machine sitting in the control room. He tried to pick it up. Luckily, it was all plugged into the console. He tried to throw it through the control room window. You know, so that's the kind of stuff I was, I was dealing with. It was a really, you know, funny moment in time. You know, for me, while you're having like sort of your uh, you're receiving all this music, I'm in the middle of like it going down in the studio. And so there was like this real volatile little culture wars thing going on at the time. Most of the artists really were, were curious about the technology. And of course, it was the sound du jour. So everybody wanted to like stay contemporary, you know, so. Well, it was, but it was wild. It was a wild time. I, I can no doubt uh, between that and the synthesizers, you know, putting corn players out of work. It was quite a quite a time. Well, that's when I hooked up with Bova. You know, we had played <laughs> I played uh, live with Bova uh, at, at an airport in like Bridgeport, Connecticut. It was like this little tiny airport that had a bar, you know, at at the airport. It was like a little local airport. And, and the band played you know normally they would have booze against the back wall of the bar they had the band we were like behind the bar a very narrow little area where we were set up and jeff was playing organ i was playing drums that's when i met him and and so ironically we both got involved in the electronic stuff at a similar time in like 82 83 and uh you know he probably told you about you know how we got together and stuff but it was uh i was working with cindy lopper and and you know in those days they would bring me in they would give me a cassette of a demo you know here's the song do the drums and go well what about everything else just do the drums first then we'll bring in a bass player and it's like my whole thing was always interactive it's just like i play a drum part along with other people so I had to guess what other people were gonna do. And with Cindy, I knew this was gonna be a problem. So I'd said to her, you know, I got this friend of mine, he plays keyboards and you know, if I bring him in, we can do this together. You'll be able to hear everything all at once, you know? So she was okay with that, but the technology was so, now you saw Jeff's rig, right? Cause I, I think he had his rig was behind him. He had tons of stuff. Well, what happened in those days was he would have two or three synths and, you know, so we'd get a bass and drums. He'd get a bass sound using all three synths stacked together to get a sound. And we, she'd go, okay, great. Now let's do a piano part. Well, all my synths are being used for the bass. So he wound up having to keep buying equipment to do these gigs. And it turned into this where we could literally push a button and play the whole record all at once. And, and that was something you couldn't do. This all evolved from that from what we were just talking about. I know he was coming from like doing change and some Herbie Hancock with Laswell and stuff. And I was working with Hall and Oates and Nile and uh, started working with Russ Teitelman and Jim Steinman, you know, and I started bringing Jeff in on all the gigs I had because I couldn't just do drums, you know? I, I, so we had our little band, you know? And, and so, so those are the things that started happening as a result of all of those other records and situations. Like we created a whole other scene that, uh, you know, we were right in the middle of because we were at the best studio. Let, let me ask you this from a philosophical, if you will, um, perspective, Jimmy. Mm -hmm. You know, back then, did you, were you considering how to make music that would be you know, of that era, of that uh, time, 
but then also somehow r remain timeless? I mean, how do you balance that so that it doesn't sound so dated and it endures? Well, you don't. That's for time to determine because the truth is everybody wants it to sound like whatever is happening now. You know, that's generally the way you know, people were the, the people I was working with, though, I would be working with like a Peter Gabriel or a Laurie Anderson or Hall and Oates, who always, you know, it was funny going from a, a situation where I was working with people who had no success to winding up making like follow up records to big hits and stuff or working with Madonna on her sophomore album, you know, after having a hit, what do you do next? It was like an amazing amount of intense stuff that went on with making those records. And it was always of the moment, you know, I, I, I really think that the timelessness, like I worked on that Steve Winwood back in the High Life album, right? Which is a lot of people think of it as a timeless record at this point. We knew it was a great record, but you know, timeless is, you gotta go through some time before you know half of the records in those days sound dated because you know they were all into the big drum sound the big snare drum that was like the big 80s thing you know put the drummer in the room instead of in the 70s the drummers usually were in a little booth like in the corner of the studio that was like all blocked off with carpeting and stuff like that in the 80s they put the drummer out in the in the room with the wood floors and stuff like that to get the biggest sound you know that whole springsteen style that was a real change. The 70s, you know, it's yacht rock now, but it was all very close sounding studio, Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Doobie Brothers. You know, the rock stuff was it was it was contained, you know, then then it went like that. You know, the drums took over the room in the studio in the 80s. So sonically, you know, people got tricked into oh, my snare drum is bigger than your mentality. And those records do not hold up sonically at the time they were just what everybody wanted you know um but i don't know anybody who goes in to make a timeless record i've never experienced that i i think that those records come from people who are not trying to follow a trend necessarily you know when you have the me too guys because that's another thing i i deal with is leaders and followers you know the leaders tend to make records that will have what you're talking about because they're not trying to mimic the moment. The minute you're trying to follow up something, you're, you're containing the space that you're operating in in some ways. And then it's a matter if you make that great record, if it's just great, if it's a seminal thing, but you don't really know, you just try and make it as good as you can while you're doing it. That's stuff for other people to, to decide, you know, it's uh you know, what works for the song. My whole thing was always, you know, what do you want it to sound like? What's the vibe? What's the feel? What are you going for? And then try and dial something up to, to make it fit. You know, there's, I call it the yeah factor. When you get it right, everyone goes, yeah. Even if they don't know what they're looking for, they know when they hear it, you know? And so when you're working with producers and writers and artists, um, you know, part of it is trying to get inside of what they're trying to do is the way I work as opposed to here's how I think your record should go, right? There's two ways to, to operate as a studio guy. Oh, here's your song. This is how, how I think it should go. Or let me help you try and accomplish the goal that you imagine, you know, that's a different path. And uh, it's always worked for me because I get fed information rather than constantly just push out my own ideas. I, I react to other people, you know, like we're having a conversation. You say something, it's going to make me say something else and vice versa. If I'm, if one of us is just talking, then it just goes out. So it, it's an interesting dynamic. How, how do you decide, you know, when or where to use actual versus electronic drums? Well, See, there's, there's the one thing with the real drummer and the, <laughs> a good drummer. It's got to be a good, it's got to be the right guy because the, the drum machine will beat the wrong live guy. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, there's music that's written. 
at this point, you talk about hip hop. So much hip hop has, is, is electronics driven or loop driven. If it's live drums, it's a loop. It's, a, you know, of, of a moment of a live drummer. Uh, but hip hop is a quantized medium. It's all done in the computer now. And, and, and so the, the electronic thing, it's almost like a moot point in so much music today. It doesn't really matter uh, because once again, it's a semantics thing. When I started doing this recording and George Martin sort of indicated this, he says up until a certain point, recording was like taking a photograph. It's like everybody played and you captured the moment. Right. The minute you started getting into this overdubbing world, it started being like painting a picture. Right. And and everything today is is painting. There's very little live recording going on and all the great old records that that still stand up were performances of people who knew how to play, you know, together all at once. And there was this combustible energy that created dare I use the word magic, when things happen at the same time, you could do takes, but one take, everybody like connects and it's better than the others, even though it's the same parts. That does not happen today. You know, the best you could do is have a guy do a take of his part to something that's already there. But the other guy doesn't get to react to the new guy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, chemistry. I did this record with Mark Rivera, who's in Billy Joel's band, and he's also Ringo's music director. I said, Mark, can we get Ringo to play on, on a song? And and uh, I finally got him to, to make the call, and Ringo said yes. So we had this track, and it was a track that we had created, you know, kind of one thing at a time. And then Ringo comes and plays drums on it. I got Ringo Starr playing on a song that I co-wrote. It was like, you know, are you kidding me? And then I realized, you know what? Nobody on this record is playing with Ringo. He's just sitting on top of all these other parts. I'm going, this is horrifying. So I, I called up Will Lee. I said, listen, man, I got to get, somebody's got to play with this guy. It's like, what a waste. What a waste, you know? Um, and imagine they were all in the room together. The energy that comes from that interaction is something that's been pulled out of the recording process you know now i mean and that's why you know i have a saying that if you're not going for feel you're going for perfect and most records today you know it's just getting the parts right they put make them in time and in tune that sounds a little out with this you know it's like controlling stuff that we never controlled you know so the the record making of today is a little bit different than than uh the way it used to be, which I think, uh, you know, makes the electronics side of it a valid way to go because, you know, people change their mind all the time today. You know, that's why we record, quote, in the box, you know, and everybody knows, oh, could you make this vocal a little louder here? In the old days, you had to like re, you know, set up the studio just to make the one move. Now it's all saved. So, uh, people like to change their ideas all the time. And it's a lot easier to change an electronic drum part than, than a live performance. Also the danger of doing it too much and you lose whatever was there. Ah, you know, it's, it's all dangerous today that way, because um, having control over something that wants to be a little bit chaotic in that way, you know, there's something magical about music performance. It used to be people up until like, you know, 25, 30 years ago, if you played music, you had to get other people together to play. You know, now you could just do it yourself. It's a whole other world, a whole other palette. Um, I just feel bad that it's sort of been to the exclusion of the other thing because that other thing is mystical. But a lot of guys don't learn how to play today. They learn their, their first band is them in their laptop, right? And they, they learn that if they make a mistake, they have the equipment to fix it. So very few people will go and do a whole take. They'll get a part and they'll copy it and paste it, right? It's like a science project. So what most of the music lacks is that kinetic spirit, that, that heartbeat of a moment in time that you can feel, you know? Um, 
and, and that's the only downside to me of all this. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.